You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Melissa Zalouf, and you're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. Joining me on today's episode, very excited, um, are Shannon, I actually wanted to ask you how to pronounce your surname. Is it Liao? Oh, it rhymes with the Italian uh, word for ciao, like bye. So Liao. Yeah. Liao. So Shannon Liao rhymes with ciao. Uh, Video games reporter for CNN Business and Rick Cowley. Let's hope I got that right. Oh, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Editor of PocketGamer.biz. Um, We will be discussing a variety of topics today, um, specifically looking at uh, gaming um, in the wider context of the entertainment industry, looking at game tech, which is a topic we've been following um, and talking about for a few different episodes now. Um, And also sort of what do we think the future holds uh, for both of these uh, both of these industries? Guys, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to have you. Um, I was telling Shannon a little earlier that I think what's really nice about about talking to reporters who cover the game industry that you guys have a um a sort of special inside outside view um on the space uh versus you know most of our our guests who normally come from sort of really inside the industry not that you aren't inside right but you're also you sort of have to have a an, an outside look as well um, so i think today's going to be super interesting um I and i can't reach and i i thought we could start with uh with shannon now, once Shannon gets water, um, <laughs> let's, uh, <laughs> I thought I was muted. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. You know what? Let's start with Rick. Rick, why don't you save us? Um, how how did you end up? How did you end up as an editor on Pocket Gamer Uh What was your journey like? Are you a gamer? Uh, um, yes, I'm a huge, huge gamer. Have been since I was a child. Um, I think my first game was Sonic the Hedgehog 2 on the Mega Drive. Um, so not not too long ago, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, so um, I joined PocketGamer.biz as a staff writer in 2015. It's coming up on my fifth anniversary of joining that job, actually. Um, so that was really cool. And I have been there pretty much for the last five years, working my way up. I was a news editor and then deputy editor. And then I was went and was the editor of PocketGamer.com, which is our... Um, b2c consumer side of things and then i came back and took over as editor of uh, boggamer.biz and we're focused on the mobile games industry um the companies within the industry and um what they're doing the big moves the the tech behind it all of that kind of thing and, and deals and all that sort of stuff um and yeah so it's just been a long long time in the mobile games industry I, i'm very interested in console and stuff and everything like that but definitely my expertise professionally is in mobile games Mm-hmm. And do you have a preference of kind of consumer versus biz side? Um, they both have very different ways of doing things. I, I enjoyed sort of like writing consumer stuff because you could be a lot, a lot more freeform and just sort of throw nonsense at a wall and see what sticks. Um, biz mm-hmm. very much you kind of have to stick, stick to a style and, and you, you want to make sure that people in the industry know what's going on in their industry and, and understand it. So it's got to be plain and simple and that kind of thing. But I think that's that's more interesting in its own way. Just like, how do I take an incredibly complex topic and then make it so that anybody could understand it and use that and go forth with new knowledge kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think that aspect is, of it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, Shannon, we'll go head on over to you now. 
Um, tell, tell us about how you ended up uh, being a gaming reporter at CNN Business. Uh, are you a gamer? Um, I always like to ask this question because I don't think it's a it's a given. But but I, to be honest, history is proving me wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, and and kind of what you if you have a specific beat that you cover. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I am a gamer, and that's like one of the first questions uh, I was asked by CNN when they, uh, you know, asked if they wanted to go to Los Angeles uh, to cover E3. It's uh, kind of how I got my start. Uh, but maybe I'll just, uh, you know, kind of rewind and start from the beginning. Um, I started covering journalism and became a reporter about ten years ago. So I was fifteen and doing a bunch of internships in high school and. I uh, found my way through different topics, world news, China news, business, and then eventually tech. And then when I, I went over to The Verge and worked there for two years uh, covering tech news, I'd always have the opportunity to pitch them on games that I was playing, such as League of Legends or MapleStory or Neopets, um, that they necessar- didn't necessarily play themselves. So they were excited to have somebody who played these games for like a decade. Um, and kind of report on them in more in depth um, and also review uh, games that I thought were interesting. So from there, uh, you know, CNN was like, oh, do you want to cover Los Angeles? Do you want to go to Los Angeles and cover E3? And they asked me, like, like are you a gamer? Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so that's how I got into the games industry and I started to cover it a bit more um, over the past year. Um, and, and you also asked me what my beat was. Um, I, yeah. I cover the entire industry, so there isn't necessarily a beat, but I mean, this is the beat. Uh, but I do cover <laughs> like the anything from the AAA games to the indie games, um, all the way through to esports and Twitch. Mm. And, and was the dream always to sort of uh, end up specializing in kind of journalism on the video games industry? Um, actually, I didn't have a goal in mind in terms of where I wanted to end up covering. I thought I would just focus on things that are interesting to me. And it just became more and more that, you know, the other issues, like everything else in the world is is something I can cover if, if need be. Like on Saturdays, I do general assignment. But um, I think overall, the games industry is what grabs me and the storytelling and the, the everything in the industry, all the labor issues and what's going on with people is what's in, interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Well, so, well, that is why we're here, because it is an interesting topic. Um, I definitely agree with you. And and I think what's what's really fun about this industry is that recently, I think probably in the last few years, um, maybe even only in the last couple of years, it's, gaming has enjoyed a, a sort of a rise or a, or a creep maybe into mainstream consciousness. Um, and, and we'll get to talking about stereotypes in, in a little bit. Um, but I, uh, as a first question, I kind of wanted to ask uh, you, Shannon, about sort of looking at gaming within the context of entertainment. Um, it sort of feels like, especially with the amount of people that are now playing games, um, especially on mobile, um, the amount of people, the demographic spread of people um, playing games, that it's sort of becoming in, in many ways, and also from a revenue perspective, for sure, it's becoming the sort of dominant uh, form of consumer entertainment. So for those sort of uh, trying to understand g- gaming from the outside, um, and what do you think, what are some of the advantages you think the category has over other entertainment mediums like film, for example, or TV or, or music? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think um, all of these mediums are, uh, that you mentioned, like film and music are trying to, 
maybe learn a bit from gaming as well. Um, gaming yeah. can be, you know, very interactive, um, can be social, it can be a single player, uh, you know, solving a mystery. It's just very versatile. Um, I think with a film or a book, you are, you know, experiencing it passively, but the game you're actually in there and it can also be easier to recall like your experience in a game than to recall what some movie you watched two years ago um so it's just very uh almost like tactile and um experiential and a lot of storytelling can be done through games um and i think like with when you see uh like a travis scott concert in fortnite or you see like the latest star wars trailer inside of fortnite that's uh indicative of how the film industry and the music industry are starting to pay attention to games. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is also games are sort of theoretically endless, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know how, how long we've necessarily, you know, I don't know if, if we've run those experiments. Uh, we know because endless is, I mean, it's impossible, let's be honest. Um, but a movie is done, a book is done, a TV series, even if it's Friends, eventually is done. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, from a revenue perspective, you're also, uh, it doesn't make a difference to you as a consumer if Netflix has kind of 10,000 shows um, or 1,000 shows, you're still paying the same subscription fee. Um, whereas with games, because of the way that the kind of the economics work, um, both kind of the revenue and the experience is theoretically kind of limitless, um, which I think is also kind of um, another interesting way to, kind of, to look at the, the, also the growth potential of the medium. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, bringing up Netflix is really interesting. I think Netflix is not only uh, covering more games uh, in terms of like documentaries, but they're also adapting like Witcher, uh, Cyberpunk is coming mm-hmm. up and uh, Resident Evil. And they have these choose your own adventures such as Bandersnatch um, and this like unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt uh, choose your own adventure that I was playing the other day that just it goes on forever. You can continuously play it because there are all these different endings and you might not get all of them. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, it just, it just goes on forever. There's no clear ending. Yeah. Rick, what's your take? I think um, rather than being like an advantage, like I think games can sort of in their own ways coexist at the same time as film and TV and stuff like um, specifically on mobile and, and with the switch, like you can play a game whilst watching something else. You can't really watch two films at the same time or, um, I've really struggled to read a book and watch a film at the same time, but I can happily like <laughs> sit and play a game while I'm, I've got some TV on in the background. So it's like it's that second screen sort of thing where you you can just have that as like an additive experience um, that you're kind mm-hmm. of automatically doing. Like I'll, I'll happily sit on the sofa while watching I don't know Hell's Kitchen, um, playing Animal Crossing on the Switch while my girlfriend is playing um, Love Nikki Dress Up Queen on her phone. Like you know, it's it's not a completely separate. Um, ecosystem yeah. in that way it's not it's not you don't have to make that choice between the two you can do both at the same time and I think that's really um, cool and interesting mm. and well let's let's actually this is I could sort of use the girlfriend example as a, as a segue <laughs> to talk about about stereotypes uh, which people have about the game industry because I, I do think from a um, not that let's let's take my parents as an example they're probably not the most technologically savvy people in the world um, they own iPhones that's about it uh, but if I were to say to them sort of gaming they would imagine kind of um, you know young men uh, probably in a dark room glued to a sort of either TV or, or PC screen 
um, kind of spending lots of their time doing, getting sucked in to spend lots of their time playing games, which is which is sort of patently not the reality today. Um, so, what do you think are some of the um, the the stereotypes or misconceptions that the you know not just the mainstream community but also maybe the investor or financial community have about the game about gaming? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing is that that idea of you know being locked away and do, doing something by yourself. Uh, and the image of just one person sat in front of a computer screen losing themselves to that. I think, you know, obviously gaming is is very, very social and a lot of games are pushing towards having more social elements and even just being like social spaces. Like uh, with Fortnite has its own like special island, which is designed specifically for being in a social space, watching films together and having that kind of space. Um, Roblox as well is is a like that's being used as like a teaching platform now. Um, I think the affordances of, of these games is is something that developers are starting to latch onto, and I don't think don't know if necessarily the wider world really understands that. Like this is they're becoming more than just games at this point. They are platforms that people go into and hang out on, and even if it's not built that way. I saw some friends on Twitter were playing um, the Tony Hawk's remakes that came out like last week or something. Um, and that doesn't have any sort of space. You can play online, but you have to be doing objectives and stuff. You have to be doing uh, trick attack or whatever. Right? There's no free skate. There's no endless roaming. Um, and they just like sat around in one of these game modes and chatted while they were playing it. Um, and they didn't actually play the game. They just let the clock wind down and then moved into the next map mm. and then carried on their conversation. Um, so I think, yeah, it's less about this sort of focused gaming experience now and more about sort of a wider um uh yeah a wider social platform um i'm trying to think of something to say about the investor community (laughs) (laughs) you don't have to (laughs) i mean listen if you want to tell someone where to invest their money i don't think they'd argue Uh, but but yeah you don't you can choose to selectively answer the question uh shannon uh what do you think I think in terms of like investors, uh, some of them, I'm not, not sure if they uh, take the time to play the game or, mm. you know, are they more attracted to, oh, the sound of, you know, okay, Activision Blizzard has called Duty and Candy Crush. Let's, let's go there. Let's invest there. I mean, I think um, in terms of uh, understanding the industry, sometimes you have to put the time in to understand the product and then also the competitors to it. Um, so like, CSGO, PUBG, Valorant, like all of those are good to play as well to develop a better understanding from like even like an investor standpoint. Um, And yeah, I definitely, um, beyond the the stereotypes of like being in your mother's basement, um, playing video games, uh, I I think, um, you know, I've actually done a story where I interviewed like a math teacher who's using like Half-Life Alex to teach uh, geometry to his kids. Um, And then, you know, people throwing Animal Crossing wedding or uh, firefighter graduation ceremony instead of Apex Legends. Uh, We definitely see those kinds of social situations as well. And especially, and I I think you're going to ask this later, but like especially during the pandemic um, where people couldn't go outside, they would find a way to still hold these rituals, these human rituals that we typically have uh, but inside a game. I think another thing as well is like, I don't know how much of a misconception this is necessarily, but I think there's sort of sometimes a view that, um, you know, there's this big game and everything's doing well, so everything has to be like that. So, you know, you've got, uh, I mean, the, the, the most recent thing was like, um, that I'm thinking of is like Dota Auto Chess. Um, and that everybody kind of went, oh, well, 
Dota's doing auto chess now and this other game is now auto chess. Everybody has to now do auto chess. And mm-hmm. um, from my perspective, auto chess has just kind of fizzled away and it's not really done anything. And I think there's, there's this usual um, look, you, you know, something goes big and everybody goes, okay, this is the next big thing and it's going to be around forever because look at how Fortnite's still here and look at how like one game, like Rocket League, I guess, um, is still do, still around and doing numbers. But I think there's, there's, you know, you don't have to chase the the big hitting genres and the big um, interesting games. I think there's still a ton of money to be made um, in smaller games. I'm going to go back to Love Nikki Dress Up Queen because I think it's one of the most fascinating games ever. Um, mm. Because it's this, it's this on the surface very strange dress up game, particular <laughs> aimed directly at young women. But underneath that, it's um, a hardcore RPG with um, tons of monetization options, tons of uh, clan stuff, and everything like that. And it had like the amount of money people pour into it is staggering. I don't know if there's any actual numbers out there, but just based on like how how much I know about like um, they've done partnerships with Disney and they were charging like oh here's twenty dollars to buy um, an Elsa dress, and people will just lap it up because it's an it's something they really want. I think you know you've got to look into the niches as well as the the big explosive fortnites and roblox and stuff you've got to dig down uh, and there's still tons of money to be made in these these quieter areas that no one's really shouting about in the in the media or anything like that mm. and what, what sort of um if shannon made you take this first because rick's just done done a done a stint um what are what are some of the important milestones you think um the game industry has hit in recent years that have shaped its current trajectory? I mean, the obvious one is is probably mobile, um, but beyond that, and, and actually Matt Ball has a really nice, um, I, I forget where he wrote it, but this, this theory that unlike other mediums, in gaming, technological shifts actually expand the market versus um, sort of refine it. So if you think about uh, video, um, you had, you know, when you had the, the replacement of VHS by DVD didn't increase kind of the overall video market. It just made it sort of, you know, technologically a bit more seamless. Whereas in gaming, uh, technological advancements actually sort of expand the overall pie. Um, so what do you think are some of the big sort of shifts or milestones that the industry has seen that have set us on this path? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Matt Ball is on point there. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, rather than, you know, yeah, like a cassette speech us, um, it, I actually, I just moved and there's a bunch of them around me and I'm going to have to throw them out because they have no functional purpose anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, even as uh, we get towards like cloud gaming and more digital copies of games, um, the old consoles, like the hardware is still relevant. Uh, there are still going to be people turning out to buy the PlayStation 5 this year. Um, so a lot of the, yeah, digitization is uh still beneficial um it's almost like um you can play on your phone and still play on console and have a purpose for both um i think some of the more recent milestones might be um uh in addition to cloud gaming um i don't know um how you would define recent i guess um over the past 20 years uh esports has been a big one um now that when people are launching a game or thinking about you know, competitive multiplayer experience, they are also thinking about how do we make this uh, an eSport um, if the fans want it? How do we build from here? And and now we have these like splashy, like Super Bowl-esque, uh, Olympics-esque um, 
Fortnite World Cups and other physical events that are on hold this year. But, you know, all the organizers I spoke to still have plans to hold them again next year when things kind of recover from the pandemic. Um, and you also mentioned mobile gaming. I mean, I could go, I could go on, um, but but mobile gaming is a, another one. Um, I think we see Nintendo has been making more mobile games um, and kind of refining its strategy there um, as well. And over the past two years, there's been like labor issues, um, more talk of unionizing within the games industry. And yeah. we've seen the Me Too movement in games come up uh, two times um, between last year and this year. And um, the industry is kind of, um, you know, doing an assessment of how they can do better um, and investigating the people who have been accused. Um, yeah, I, I had more, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> doing, doing well so far. <laughs> Uh, uh, Rick, what about you? Uh, I mean, I think Shannon pretty much hit basically yeah, everything we... there. Um, the one thing I, I will say is um, obviously the growth of free to free to play um, mm-hmm. within like the last decade or so. Like you wouldn't, I think, if a decade ago you probably wouldn't imagine ever not paying for a game, downloading it for free, and then investing like unlimited revenue kind of thing. Um, but I think that's certainly yeah. something that it started on mobile. Uh, has crossed over now into to the console world. It's still sort of viewed kind of warily. People don't really know what to do with it. Mm. Um, there's concerns from parents about it. You always he- see like a story once a month, like, oh, my son spent £200 on FIFA. Um, yeah. How could this happen? Um, and I think, you know, we, we still, we're, we've reached that important milestone where free-to-play is, is here and it's going to stay forever. Uh, I think we're still working towards a point where... The, the wider society and people fully understand what it is, how it works and um, how to, you know, avoid falling into traps of spending all their money in it, I guess. <laughs> traps. <laughs> um... I'm not saying like developers design traps or anything, but I, you know, people, it is, it is this thing of like people are always saying, oh, I accidentally spent 200 pounds on FIFA. Like, well, maybe we need to have more education on what free-to-play is and what what you're actually getting out of um, your purchase and, and like, you know, why you... And to try and understand why people like it as a thing, because people do. Lots of money gets made through free-to-play. Uh, we need to try mm-hmm. and understand a bit better, like, the emotional response to buying things and, and that kind of thing. And once we understand all of that, I think people will be less scared of free-to-play. Mm. Um, I, it's Shannon, actually, you mentioned the pandemic and obviously no podcast can go by without mentioning it. Um, have you, have you sort of been surprised, uh, by the resilience of gaming during COVID or was it sort of a foregone conclusion that people would be playing more as they were sheltering in place? Right, right. Um, this is definitely something I give a lot of thought to, um, even back in January, uh, when the pandemic first hit, uh, China, and I realized, you know, gamers over there are going to be under lockdown. Are they going to be playing more? And I suspected that was the case. And we started to get more revenue figures from like Tencent and other giant gaming companies in China that their, you know, numbers were going up. Um, it, it does seem like, because even back in like 2008, uh, people had headlines saying that gaming is recession-proof, and is one of the industries that's doing well even during financial crisis. So I was thinking that it would do well, um, but there are some people who weren't sure either because obviously gaming is like an expense that you're spending extra money on. So when you don't have that extra money, Mm. you might not necessarily buy a game. So there's actually quite a a toss-up in terms of how this would shape out. So I wasn't really sure. 
Um, but I did, you know, through like talking to gamers in January in China and, and figuring it out um, as we went along, I realized that, you know, especially with traditional sports shutting down, there everybody would turn to esports and even traditional broadcasters started to talk to esports uh, companies about how can I get your show on my uh, network because I don't have any content to to display otherwise. Um, so from there, I, it became very apparent, especially with um, the release of like Animal Crossing in March and how it is now Nintendo's second biggest game after Mario Kart 8. Um, it, it's really clear that all the games that came out during the pandemic um, saw a boost from it. Um, not, not all the games, some games still flopped, um, but definitely the successful ones were even more successful than they might have been um, had there not been a pandemic. Mm. And Rick? Yeah, I think um, the point about them being like more successful, I, I, I sort of kind of assumed, okay, well, people are going to be at home, they'll play games, they'll watch TV, everything that's like a home entertainment thing is going to see success. But uh, as Shannon sort of mentioned, like, it, it was surprising seeing how successful some of the big games ended up being um, and just how much they managed to thrive. And I think what was especially interesting, um, and it's kind of a small niche within a niche, obviously, but um, with games like Pokemon Go and location-based stuff, um, those are games that are designed for you to go outside and, and play games mm. outside and meet other people. Uh, and obviously that just didn't happen. But what Niantic managed to do was completely overhaul Pokemon Go. Um, so that it became a game that you could play at home while still, I've not actually checked out myself, but as far as I understand it, you, you can play the game basically as you would normally, but you don't have to go out and go anywhere and, and you can still play online with other people without having to physically meet them and that kind of thing. And that Mm. like Pokemon Go has thrived. It's having its like second best year of revenues ever, um, because of this. And it's, it's, Mm. it's wild that like a game so focused on, the the real world and going out there has, has succeeded and i think we were we were speaking to other um location-based developers and they said you know it's hard having to rethink how you're making this game and, and how you're gonna go and keep making these games in a post-covid world um but overall like because people are finding people need something to do they're finding these games they're playing them even if it's not mm. actually able to go outside so i think that's really interesting um in terms of like the resilience kind of side of things yeah, yeah i think I think another another element here is what games sort of well both of you kind of touched on what games thrived um but for example let's say you would have seen hyper casual games sort of do um normally really well um and you'd assume okay during during a pandemic you'll see the same thing there'll be a spike because people have more time to play but in some cases you actually saw the opposite because part of the use not the user experience but kind of the um, context of playing hyper casual games is I'm commuting, mm. right? Or I'm waiting in line for something, or I'm sort of in between, I'm going about my daily life, which includes kind of outside world <laughs> stuff. Um, and that's, and I'm, and I'm playing in those kind of snatches of time. Whereas when you're at home and time is not sort of broken up, um, you know, it's, it, it suddenly wasn't, you know, you didn't see necessarily the spike um, of in hyper casual playing as you otherwise would have expected. Whereas uh, in terms of casual titles um, or games that kind of have more um, more depth to them, there was more, there was an uptick because people had now more time to sort of commit to engaging more deeply with the game. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, and I think um, back to 
Pokemon Go actually gave it a shot uh, recently, and I was like, oh, um, I want to see how easy it is to level without moving from my chair. Um, and <laughs> I, I immediately got to level five because they give you a lot of free items now to attract. There's this item called incense, so you can attract a bunch of Pokemon next to you and just catch them where you're sitting. Um, and so that's been really, um, and I think they were really clever to do that early on in the pandemic to change their strategy just when they knew that you can't go outside. Um, and other games that have more complexity, I think definitely have been doing well. Like even Animal Crossing, which might seem like a casual game. I've had friends sink 500 hours into them and, you know, going onto their island is fully decked out. Every inch of it is covered in furniture or a bush or a waterfall and, it's just so well done that, you know, if I try to match them, it would take me another 500 hours too. Um, it's just every day, day in and out playing this game um, is what their life has become um, during the pandemic. And yeah, it makes sense. And we are theoretically here also to talk about game tech um, now that we've sort of Oh, exhaustively covered the game industry. Um, I uh, I think it was uh, Newzoo that that first kind of officially used the term game tech in their infographic, um, which which came out sort of uh, I think a couple of months ago. Mapped out the the ecosystem of companies that fuel the the growth of the game industry or enable it from a technological standpoint. Um, how do you guys, from a media perspective, how do you guys see that ecosystem? Is it part of um, how you cover the industry, Rick, you mentioned it was. Um, sort of how how interesting do you think that is for for the audiences that you write for? Uh, oh, who should go first? <laughs> Rick, you can go. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, from a from a business point of view, definitely it's of huge interest because if you're making a game, you need to understand all these tiny little things, and particularly like in the the free to play space, like you fully fully need to understand like what tools am I using to build the game? What am I going to use to um, run adverts and track uh, attribution, that kind of thing? How am I going to, you know, user acquisition, market analytics? I'm literally just reading the subcategories now. Um, <laughs> and all the platforms and stuff like that. You know, you need to have an understanding of, of all this kind of stuff. And I have... I wouldn't say like I'm an expert on game tech. I would say I have a, an understanding of, of each of these like different things and, and all everything that you developers need to use because, you know, you need to understand that so that our audience can find out more about the things that they need to know about. Um, I'm really interested to hear about Shannon, actually, because I, I, I don't I personally, I don't think like consumer people really care about this side of, of, the, of the, the market. Yeah, I think definitely writing for CNN Business, uh, we have to think about what is going to appeal to not just the gaming audience, but a non-gaming audience, mm. um, somebody who doesn't know much about games, or maybe they've played uh, Pac-Man back in the day, but no, no longer. Um, and so so the, the part of game tech that you know immediately we continue to cover and write about are the platforms, such as um, Nintendo Switch, uh, Google Play, PlayStation. But I think in terms of uh, the rest of game tech, the more obscure parts, the parts that people don't know about necessarily unless they're in the industry, um, I think they're great for like talking to them. They all have insights. Um, they're great sources. They maybe have the secrets of the industry that uh, I wouldn't know unless I talked to them. Um, you know, I, I know one of these companies even uh, told me about uh, the, the amount of money that Ninja was making. Um, from signing on with Mixer, so I don't I don't think I would have gotten that information if I 
didn't take the time to talk to these companies. Um, and I think especially another category that's interesting is like market analysis. I think any investor looking at the industry can only make sense of it by talking to these kinds of companies. Mm. I think also um, what's what's potentially, um, well, okay, I, I can't resist. You mentioned platforms. <laughs> so... <laughs> What's both of you are going to have to give me your take on what's going down between Epic and Apple right now, <laughs> Shannon? Because you were the offender who risked saying the word platform, you have to go yeah. first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Epic versus Apple. Um, so, so I actually read all the emails between Tim Sweeney and Apple, and it's clear that from the beginning, like back in August or maybe even July, he he was reaching out to ask if I if he could. Uh, you know, introduce another way uh, for people to pay him to pay Epic without giving Apple its cut of 30%, uh, which is typical standard revenue share, uh, revenue cut. Uh, but uh, Apple, you know, then brought in their lawyer and was like, um, uh, the lawyer gave a no. legal response saying no. Um, and, and then Tim was like, how did you, why did you bring your lawyer in? Um, uh, you know, you could have just talked to me face to face versus uh, bringing mm. your lawyer. And after that, you know, it seemed like they planned to have a lawsuit. But first of all, they, Epic, you know, introduced this way to pay them directly. And that violated Apple and Google's policies. And following that, um, Epic just uh, sent in a lawsuit. And they even had a parody of the famous Apple yeah. ad of 1984, uh, Big Brother, <laughs> but with, with Fortnite characters instead. Um, so this was all very planned and orchestrated just so they could challenge Apple. And this is coming at a time where there's a lot of antitrust claims and investigation mm -hmm. into Apple and Google. Um, so it is like almost the opportune time, um, you know, just after uh, Tim Cook and uh, Siddhar Pinchai were in front of Congress uh, talking about mm. this. So that's like the kind of backstory behind it. Um, I could go into uh, more but I'll, I'll leave it at that for now and see what rick has to say <laughs> she's, she's she's very careful um i i mean i think in when in talking about the backstory i think i'm not sure if it was planned this perfectly right but there is also a sense uh with all all what's going around uh all what's going on around ios 14 that also kind of maybe apple isn't really um you know isn't really being uh, easy on developers or maybe doesn't isn't sort of really making thinking about their reality and their businesses and how it's sort of sweeping changes can impact their 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 sort of basic livelihood um, and so it's it was a really sort of triply opportune time for um, for Epic to make this move although of course Apple's now sort of come back and said it's okay you have a grace period um, you know but maybe maybe also because because they they realize they're facing a, a slightly sort of more evolvingly hostile uh, uh, context um, Rick <laughs> uh, I mean I mean I, Apple's kind of always been difficult to work with i guess like the 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 idea mm. of them having this walled garden economy um is something that has always been around since the start of the app store you know you had to have games made in a specific way for their platform you have to abide by all their terms and conditions and people have been surviving and, and making games and, and you know thriving through that ecosystem for years and years now so i'm not hugely surprised that when um someone's tried to contest it apple have just st stood firm and, and started a full-on legal battle 
Um, I'm really curious to know like what Epic's endgame here is, because I don't... Epic, Epic has its own platform, because it has the Epic Game Store now. Um, and you know there was Tim um, Tim Sweeney wanted to like bring that to the to iOS as well. It was never going to happen. It definitely won't anymore. Um, and maybe onto Android um, and all that kind of thing. But like it's making enough money through Fortnite that it managed to launch its own platform for selling games and offer um, a much better rate. So they only take twelve percent, I think it is. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm really not sure. Like if 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 Fortnite never returned to iOS. I don't think it would make a huge dent into um, Epic's revenues. Um, I believe over the last sort of two years, Fortnite's cleared about a billion dollars in revenue estimated on iOS alone. And that is a lot of money, but for Epic, that's not a huge amount of money. It's just raised like um, over $2 billion in a funding yeah. round that's valued at like $50 billion or something like that. Like this this is source, and, and for Apple as well, it, it's basically pocket change. Um, their like three hundred million dollar cut of that is they could lose that behind the sofa and, and they wouldn't notice. Um, so it's it's a weird mm. sort of dynamic where it's this um, you know epic of sort of pitched themselves as the David versus Goliath when it's really just Goliath against larger Goliath. Um, and <laughs> uh, and they ha- if they lose then they can just walk away and, and go back to the Epic Game Store and continue working there and it's no skin off their backs. Um, so it's it's in I'm I'm curious to see why Epic has has done this because I don't think they've ever really given a, a, an explanation that satisfies me. I understand like the crusade against these um the 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 big revenue shares and and giving more money to smaller developers and that kind of thing. But for a major company like Epic to be doing it, I'm I still don't see where their sort of end goal is. I guess. Mm. yeah Mm. i think those are great points and it also it makes me curious but i think the fact that epic is so big gives them the ability to do this right Mm. like it couldn't be an indie developer challenging apple in this way apple would say well you know you violate our policies you're off our platform and then the indie developer would have no recourse um at that point i mean to to pursue a lengthy uh, court battle or or lawsuit is really expensive and you know epic has hired some of the best lawyers um, on their side. Um, and that that to me is kind of a sign of how big and successful Epic is. Mm. Uh, another, another question for me um, is, you know, the fact that Nintendo and PlayStation and Ep- Xbox all ask a 30% revenue share yeah. as well. Um, and Epic has not chosen to challenge them but only challenge Apple and Google. And another request that they had in the emails between Tim and Apple was, um, you know, Tim Sweeney was asking uh, if they could launch the Epic Game Store within uh, the Apple App Store, which it just sounds, I don't know, does that even, how would that even work? Um, It seemed like there would be a hole in uh, Apple's security at that point where, you know, the games getting approved by Epic are not necessarily approved by Apple anymore. They they can just funnel in whatever games. Obviously, Epic would have um, its protocols, but there are not going to be the same ones that Apple goes through when they review apps. So that the the request there was very interesting. I have not seen. I don't see a lot of um, app stores within app stores. Um, I, I like Facebook Gaming was trying to do that with their um, app, uh, and that was refused. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of different questions within this whole issue, and uh, I am not the one to like make a call on what those answers are, but I am the one to like try to investigate and figure this out. 
well, this is sort of speaking of Goliath versus a bigger Goliath. Um, <laughs> I, I sort of I feel like I've been hearing this a bit more often recently, a discussion around sort of uh, the bigger game companies in the context of the really big companies out there like the, the Fang companies. Um, and specifically, uh, Deconstructor of Fun podcast uh, or Deconstructor of Fun have a podcast episode on the defensibility of, of big game companies. How do we make a game company that's as defensible um, as Amazon? What do you think? Um, what do you think constitutes? I mean, this is a slightly large question, so you can you can be as selective as you want in your answer. Um, but what are you, what's your take on? Uh, the def- how game companies can become defensible. Is it through technology? Is it through content? Is it through sort of um, loyalty and retention, um, IP? I'm giving you lots of options here. Um, <laughs> make of them what you will and Rick, go first. I'm going to sound really stupid here, but could you de- like define defensibility? Defensibility, <laughs> yeah. I had so, some- so <laughs> the, the, the idea behind now, let's hope I get this right, right? Um, defensibility, in my very crude um, understanding, is b- basically how protected is your market position um Mm. how how defensible is your is your position in the sense that competitors would find it very very hard um to uh to oust you or to capture market share um and that you're also you know you're sitting on a wide enough band of uh or, or set of products um or value propositions for a wide enough audience that you're also not sort of vulnerable to uh, kind of one industry changing because you're not sort of dependent on just one product. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, so with that sort of in mind, I think definitely like having access and having making use of a variety of different bits of game tech is obviously going to be very beneficial um, as we've seen with Apple, as we were saying, um, introducing like iOS 14 and the death of the IDFA, um, because obviously that has changed. Like, you know, it's a big sweeping change that I oh, are going to stop allowing you to use IDFA and that whole tracking system is gone. Um, you know, that's that's caused, I think, like I, I get the feeling that's caused a bit of panic in 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 the the market. Um, on on mobile because obviously that changes mm-hmm. everything that makes it a lot harder to track it makes it a lot harder to track players and users that in turn makes it harder to um, give them uh, targeted adverts and that then leads to reduced revenues I believe is sort of the the cascade of that um, thing mm-hmm. and it is just this big thing um, so obviously like if your if your company relies entirely on on um, you know, ad monetization, say your Voodoo, I know they do IAPs in their hyper-casual games, but the hyper-casual market in general is probably going to get hurt by this um, because they're relying a lot on ad tech. So you need to make sure you're working with different ad partners who are going to pursue different things like um, not just rewarded video ads, but offer walls and um, new um, in, uh, non-intrusive ad formats. Um, so like in-game billboards yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, I think having that diversity of, of, of like game tech platforms behind you is definitely going to make your company more defensible. Um, you know, and, and companies go bust and companies <clears throat> change tax uh, and different things like different ideas and ad start styles go away and come back. And so having access to a bunch of different pieces that you can sort of fall back on if you need to, I think is very, very important in that regard. Um, mm. Yeah. 
And 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 actually, just to sort of, I can I can maybe even make the question easier, which is a bit unfair on you, Rick. Fun for you, Shannon. Um, how do we build the Amazon of gaming? Sort of, which come is it? You know, are, do we can we see a world in which a Zynga, an Activision, etc., um, sort of becomes as defensible as Amazon is in its own market today? Is that sort of possible? Do we think, um, I mean, look at Epic, for example. Um, is, are they a candidate? Um, Unity is about to IPO, obviously. Mm. Um, so right. that's, that's sort of um, another slant on the question. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you almost answered it there yourself uh, with Epic <laughs> being, I think, one of the, the best contenders, um, you know, having uh, multiple uh, value propositions, um, you know, from the Unreal Engine uh, being, you know, a development tool that a lot of developers rely on to make their games. Um, that's something that a judge has ruled that, you know, Apple cannot just disable Unreal Engine for these developers so they, they can continue to use it. Um, and then Epic also has Fortnite, which is the um, arguably the biggest PC game and biggest game um, across different platforms. Um, and then it also has the Epic Game Store, which I am not sure if it is... Um, the strongest uh, PC game store, I think Steam might be a little bit ahead, but Epic offers free games every week, attracting people back to the store again and again. Um, and so it has um, so many different aspects of uh, game tech that that it's really, really strong. Um, Unity, you mentioned, I think they, they operate at a loss, uh, which their mm-hmm. you know, IPO kind of revealed to us. Um, but they do have a lot of different tools and different aspects of game tech as well. I, I just don't see them right now because they've revealed their financials to us. They're not looking as good. Um, but also Fang companies are part of game tech too. Like Amazon mm-hmm. AWS yes. is behind a lot of these games. Um, when I spoke to them, they, they pretty much mentioned like all the different top games that you might know of, um, they're, they're involved with. Um, so they do make money off of that, even if, uh, you know, Amazon's Crucible didn't do so well. And if, uh, you know, and they also own Twitch. So they're obviously already in the game space. Um, and the rest of the companies, um, they they just need to differentiate more if they want to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I'm sort of also t- tempted now to ask you questions about Unity, but I feel this is potentially getting a little unfair. Um, so, <laughs> um, uh, Rick, this is actually one I think maybe for you because you are um, probably quite focused on uh, on the tech, well, a little focused at least on the tech side. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that game tech has fueled the growth of the of the game industry beyond sort of very clear things like okay, if there's advertising technology available, then it, you're able to make more money from ad monetization. Okay, um, but kind of more more broadly, um, how have you seen technology impact the Oh gosh, I want Shannon. I want you to ask, answer this one too. Um, <laughs> impact the kind of the the evolution of the game industry. Ooh, um, so I guess the the first thing would be like the rise and, and refinement of market analytics and and that kind of. Uh, so mm. I'm looking at the the things now. So like Sensor Tower obviously has grown massively. They've just raised two hundred million dollars, I believe, um, mm-hmm. and they 
we use a lot of their data on pocketgamer.biz, mostly because we have a great contact there, but also um, because their data is really good. It's really sound. And, um, you know, sometimes developers will say, oh, no, I disagree with their revenue figures, but it's, you know, it's slightly off. But they, they are getting so good at now estimating how much money games are making. And they have so many tools available where you can sort of like refine down um different brackets of genres and all this kind of thing and they've worked with uh, i think it was deconstructor fun to like get get it down mm-hmm. to just this super super specific niche genre that you can then sort of go okay these are the games that i'll be competing against um i can look you can look at what they're doing you can look at how they are growing and and presenting themselves in the market what keywords and that kind of thing for um, app store optimization and then start building your game to sort of compete in that very specific niche um, which I think has is, is definitely helped in terms of growth. Um, I don't like, um, we've talked a bit about engines and Unity and stuff. I think definitely the ubiquity of Unity and Unreal um, has definitely helped. And then these sort of more niche um, and smaller engines. Um, so Buildbox, I know, is growing massively and um, mm. very popular for hyper casual. Um, and also, like, it's that whole thing of Unity's whole message was like democratizing game development. You know, it's opened up mm-hmm. the space to even more developers. Um, and I think that's definitely helped grow the industry as a whole because now we have more people who can just, you can go online, Unity now has all of its pro lessons available for free forever. So you can just learn Unity by going online, mm. downloading a few videos and, and having a, a bash at it. I've given it a go myself. It's actually a lot harder than that, but the theory is sound. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, it, it's we're, we're opening up the the game development world to more and more people and that means that more people understand it and that means more people are willing to play the games and buy the games and so on and so forth and i think that's or, or, or also helped. make the games I yes think exactly is, is probably, um I, I it's probably a, a relatively sound argument one that says the more the easier you make it to make games <laughs> Uh, the more likely it is that the industry is going to grow. Mm. And and really sort of market analytics, I think it's also, it, it's coincided with a rise in, in competition in the market, which makes understanding that market maybe sort of as you're building or before you're building your game so much more important, yeah. right? Because you sort of say to yourself, okay, is this is this game marketable um, or not? Uh, but that's a, that's a discussion in and of itself. Uh, Shannon? Right, right. Um, so, so the question was, uh, which parts of game tech? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. What was the question? Uh, take it however you will. Okay. Um, yes. How okay. has technology impacted the evolution of the game industry? Go. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. Um, I think I think we covered a lot of it, um, but I, I do think that uh, when it comes to the platforms, they they have a huge say in you know what gets marketed to consumers? What do they click on first? Um, what do they notice? And what are even available? Um, you know, for instance, like Steam, there was this Taiwanese horror game called Devotion mm. that was, uh, you know, banned um, because there were Easter eggs within it that made fun of the Chinese president. Um, and and so this game never came to market uh, for a lot of people on Steam, and they were not able to play this game unless they maybe found it somewhere else and downloaded it. Um, and so even though there was this like cult following of curiosity around what is this horror game and the previous game um, from the same studios did well, people were not able to access it and therefore it just didn't have any kind of um, success. And the same goes for, so other games within the 
the market have to you know respond to that and realize they they cannot put like an easter egg that offends the chinese government they have to kind of walk this thin line um, just looking at what is allowed on the platform and that really determines uh what people get to play um so i think that's Mm. like has a huge impact Mm. i think Um, sorry one more thing as well um because oh, yeah. I was I was just looking at the the list of the companies and I was thinking about um so cloud services and and backend servers and that kind of thing for multiplayer games uh you know I don't think Fortnite or anything like that with a hundred you know, PUBG and all those kinds of games would have been possible you know five years ago before we had these kinds of servers I, I guess like in like 2012 or something there was a massive action game on PS3 that had like 80 versus 80 matches but it was slow as hell um, but now you know you've got these these massive cloud servers and it becomes a lot easier and it also opens up to smaller companies doing multiplayer games so fall guys um which came out last month um uh, is made by mediatonic and mediatonic is technically quite a big company but is still considered a relatively small indie in the grand scheme of things um and then so they've launched this massively multiplayer game it's got millions and millions of people playing and then people are on twitter saying oh they're not indie because they can run a game that that hosts like millions of players um you know how does anyone have access to that and i saw a developer tweet have you never heard of aws like they are just using (laughs) amazon's web services to use that to power their servers and because of that because it's so easy to access and clearly, you know, simple to use for a small team of server devs, it opens up um, multiplayer games to smaller teams. Uh, and I think that's definitely, I think with the, with the, how quickly Fall Guys has taken over and become like a huge, huge game, I think we're going to see more smaller developers, you know, not, you know, two man teams or anything, but certainly like smaller, less heard of teams coming up with these really interesting multiplayer games that they're then able to throw out there a lot easier and with a lot less cost because they are using these cloud servers. Yeah, Mm. and I think uh, one of the contributing factors to Fall Guys' success was also people being able to stream it on Twitch and Mm. promote it via social media. So that's where, like, influencer marketing comes in, um, where, you know, if a game doesn't get a lot of people who are famous, who have their following um, from other gamers uh, playing the game, then nobody will hear of it and it will it will flop. And we've seen that before this summer uh, with Crucible where nobody had heard of it um, on launch and it got very little marketing. And it wasn't really explained why, because you know it, it's coming from Amazon, which owns Twitch. So there was kind of a mystery there why they just released it without explaining anything. Um, but yeah, marketing is, is very important as well. Yeah, if a tree falls in a forest, will anyone play with it? Um, (laughs) Bearing all of the very interesting things that we've said today in mind, uh, where do you think, what do you think we're going to see in 2021? Can be game or game tech related. Um, We've sort of mentioned interesting things like cloud gaming. Um, We haven't mentioned the metaverse, but maybe one of you wants to bring it up. Uh, are we going to see sort of new new genres maybe explode onto the onto the scene like we saw with Hypercasual? Um, is Hypercasual going to die? That's always a fun one. Um, yes, where where are we going? What are we going to see in the next year? Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see more of the same um, kind of momentum that people staying indoors during lockdown has given the game industry. Uh, because I, I know a bunch of tech companies and even traditional companies are more open to the idea of people working from home all the time. And then they wouldn't have a commute. They wouldn't have um, uh, all that extra time spent on a train or a car. And so they can 
you know, devote that time to gaming. And that that would probably uh, continue to boost uh, gaming numbers. A lot of the game companies over the past earnings quarter reported uh, bumped up earnings um, and they could see and they they are uh, positive on their outlook for the next quarter as well. Mm. I was thinking about hypercasual. I don't think hypercasual is going to die. I think it's going to evolve and change. Like speaking to hypercasual developers, they are thinking like, what comes next? Because we've had hypercasual for years now, and they're thinking, right, how do we turn this into like hybrid casual? Is a, a buzzword I hear quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, how do how do we make these kinds of gameplay experiences, but we have more depth around them, more social elements, make them into sort of you know quote unquote full games. Um, beyond just sort of little things that we play on on the commute and kind of thing and i think definitely like you know as shannon was saying you know people staying indoors more they have more time to play games i think the hyper casual developers will see that and think okay now is the time that we we need to evolve this medium um so i don't think hyper casual mechanics are going away i think the games as as a whole um will change um, and also we need to see how IDFA plays out and, and Apple mm-hmm. doing with that, because that's obviously, as we mentioned, going to completely throw, going to completely change how um, advertising, I think, works on mobile. And um, I think that will also allow new forms of advertising to come in and start taking over. So, um, you know, as I was saying, off the walls, non-intrusive ads, there's some really cool stuff going on with audio ads, which have proven um, hugely mm-hmm. popular in Spotify and, and that kind of thing. And now those companies who made a lot of money on Spotify are going, okay, how can we do this in mobile, in mobile games in specific, specifically? Um, so I think there's going to be a, a lot of changes of how these smaller experiences work and how we monetize those. Um, in, I've, I don't know enough about the metaverse really to comment. That's the kind of like the, the expansion and change and everything move, merging into one where everything's a film and the game at the same time. Um, and this whole Netflix thing. Um, I think we're probably a still few years out of that um mm-hmm. i'm super excited for vr still i know that's kind okay. of um, <laughs> old school at this point um but i am we're, we're like a, a week out from um rumored oculus quest 2 um announcement mm-hmm. which i'm very excited by um i would love to see vr start to you know pick up steam again and, and go to mobile vr and ar and that kind of thing um i think yeah i think over the next year we're gonna see like people just trying lots of new things and i think maybe we'll see some more experimentation because the world's changed massively uh and now is the time to start going okay let's just see what works because the old ways don't work anymore mm-hmm. yeah i think um yeah uh the metaverse um vr cloud gaming um has yet to really kind of emerge um you know we have stadia but people don't really i mean the, the adoption rates aren't, aren't probably aren't there. We don't know what they are, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem, sound like it from um, people talking about it. Uh, and xCloud is coming out next week um, and, and all of these things. And, and 8K uh, TVs, too, are, you know, not really adopted across the market yet. Uh, but we have support for 8K gaming in Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5. So maybe in a couple of years, we'll, we'll see more 8K gaming. Nice. Uh, for my last question, um, something a little off topic. If I am a game developer listening to this podcast, as I'm very hopeful that they are, um, how, uh, and I'd like to pitch you guys, how do I get in touch with you? What's best? Is it you don't have to share your personal telephone number? That's allowed. You, don't have to. you can, um, but you don't have to. Uh, but what is the best way to get your attention? 
make a good game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or if you don't uh, make a good game, that. make a game that people talk about. Right. Okay. <laughs> so you heard it here first. Make a good game. <laughs> or That's don't. The key to, <laughs> to both, I'm sorry uh, that to, sounds sarky. To, 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 <laughs> no, no. If, if it's true, is it sarky? It, it, um, it is a key so, thing, to be honest. Make a good game, but make yeah. something that looks nice, that plays nice. It doesn't have to have to change the world, but it has to be... You have to play it and go, oh, this is fun. I, I can see myself yeah. continually playing this. Um, yeah, or right. even like the KFC like dating uh, Colonel Sanders uh, yes. dating simulator. <laughs> that was that was fun. Well, yeah. so or make some make something fun. so completely bizarre and out there you have to instantly start writing about it. Right. <laughs> or make yeah. something with KFC, actually. I've seen loads of stories <laughs> about what KFC is up to. They did the dating sim, they had a uh, a partnership in um, Taiwan for um, Arena of Valor, which is the huge uh, mobile Mm-hmm. Um, MOBA. Uh, you know, you could play as the Colonel in that for about a month if you bought a KFC thing. We wrote about that. It went crazy views. It was amazing. Um, KFC has their own island in Animal Crossing. You know, partner with KFC. They're clearly doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to summarize with make a good game, create fun, be bizarre, or partner with KFC. Or- <laughs> Ironclad bulletproof strategy for getting the attention of these two very smart people. Uh, thank you very, very much, both of you, for being uh, on the show today, um, which is, has been a slightly long one, but I really couldn't resist. Um, and yes, everyone else, thank you as always for listening.